we don't work by the hour. We don't sell anything by the hour and that is not how we work. And if you can begin to transition your clients to where it's about outcomes and not about the hours, then they'll come to you and they'll need you. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hourly to Exit podcast. I'm your host, Erin Austin, lawyer, mama of kid and doggy, tennis player, once and future trail runner, YouTube addict, and dreamer. I provide legal tips and bits for turning your expertise into recurring revenue, turning your time-intensive hourly-based business to one that is scalable and hopefully one day saleable is the journey from hourly to exit. This podcast is for experts, consultants, coaches, and other professional services providers with sophisticated corporate clients. If you're investing in the growth of your business, you need advice and resources that address the issues that set you apart from other service-based businesses. Those templates for online businesses don't mean a thing when your client sends their 50-page master services agreement to you for signature. Stop playing small because you don't know how to protect your ideas. Hourly to Exit is here to show you how to navigate the maze of contracts and intellectual property issues so that you can safely and profitably share your ideas with clients and with collaborators. Before we dive in, please remember that this podcast provides general information only. The content of this podcast should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not intended to be a substitute for professional legal consultation. Each legal situation is unique and the laws and regulations can vary widely by location and they do change over time. For specific legal advice regarding your individual circumstances, please consult with a qualified attorney who can address your specific needs. Now, let's get started with today's topic. Hello, ladies. Welcome to this week's edition of the Hourly to Exit podcast. I have a wonderful guest for you today, Samantha Hartley. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you, Erin. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You know, we have a lot to talk about, but before we dive in, would you introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, I'm Samantha Hartley. My business is samanthahartley.com, and I'm also known as Enlightened Marketing, and I have a podcast called Profitable Joyful Consulting. So those are the brand family. And I am a consultant to consultants. So I work with women management consultants who are working with businesses anywhere from 2 million to multi-billions. And usually they are experiencing the revenue roller coaster. And sometimes they're so slammed with work in the business that it's impossible for them to grow. So I help them to multiply their revenues without exhaustion, working with perfect clients on transformational engagements. Those are year-long, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. So when they do that, they start to experience more profit and more joy in their businesses. Sounds perfect. Sounds great. So before we get started, I wanted to talk about, well, myself for a second. So I'm about to be <laughs> an empty nester. Oh, I'm counting the days. Uh, you know. And so thinking about you know where next, I know I'm not going to stay where I am, which is in kind of the exurbs of Washington, D.C., and so I'm asking people about where they live and what they love about it. And might it be a place for an empty nester? Oh, it's well, Martha's Vineyard is where I live year round. It is a fantastic place to live nine months of the year. And so I highly urge you to go and visit it. It's a great place to visit. I would say get an Airbnb for a month and just check it out. 
In the summertime, it swells to 150 to 200,000 people. And in the wintertime, it shrinks to about 15,000 to 20,000. So we have a huge bustling tourist economy. But it's a tiny island, a proper island, no bridges, no anything like that. You get there by a boat or by an airplane. It's only 45 minutes off the coast of Cape Cod. So you can see the shore from the island. And you may have, a lot of people have not heard of Martha's Vineyard, but may have heard of Nantucket or Cape Cod. That's all the Cape and Islands are all a thing. And it's a wonderful place to live. Right now, though, it has a very long, yucky spring. And so I'm actually in Arkansas, where I grew up. Arkansas, I can tell you, and especially the town I'm in right now, Conway, Arkansas. Conway, Arkansas is a college town. There's three colleges here, including the University of Central Arkansas. So there's tons of wonderful things going on. And it has four seasons also one of which is unbearable. So our friends that we live with right now come and visit us during the summertime and we come to them in the spring. So we're having 66 degrees while they're having a snowstorm that's closing down the vineyard. Oh, that <laughs> so is I recommend two locations. That's my empty nester suggestion is always have two locations where you can experience the best of both worlds. Well, I will say that one of my, I guess it's my bucket list is to just always be in summer, just spend mm -hmm. summer, summer in the Northern hemisphere yep. and winter, summer in the Southern hemisphere and never, I'm so over four seasons. I don't ever need to have <laughs> any season other than summer for the rest of my life. And uh, yeah, yeah, so I've been to Martha's Vineyard, but only in the summer and only during the tourist season. And I will only go when I can fly there directly from national. Because I, so I've never done the ferry, although I think that would be an adventure. So I should try that sometime. So well, yeah. thank you for that. I wondered what it's like there off season. And I don't know why, but for some reason I thought because of the, whatever the currents, whatever, that you didn't get snowstorms, but you do. Okay. All right. Oh, yes. We don't get anything as bad as they get on the mainland. So it's cooler okay. in the summer than on the mm -hmm. mainland. And all the weather's always milder there. All right. Well, good to know. I'm taking notes here. All right. So <laughs> tell me about your typical client and how do you help him or her? And how do they know that they need you? What pain are they experiencing? Like, I need to go talk to Samantha. She's a her usually, and her business is somewhere in the low six figures. And she aspires to have a business in the low seven figures. So usually one to two million is what they're looking for from their business. And what they're experiencing is revenue roller coaster. It means they have wonderful high months, but they also have some terrifying low months. And that kind of inconsistency of revenues is super stressful. And they're not quite sure how to fix that problem. They also might be experiencing that they don't have revenue roller coaster. They just have all slammed all the time. And the owner is, this is usually a business that's 500 to 750,000. And they can't imagine a way to grow. I can't imagine it. So those particular consultants need me. Sometimes they're agency owners, but most often management consultants. And they're working with sometimes businesses you've heard of, like the Fortune 500. But a lot of times it's just kind of mid-sized manufacturers or other kind of like mom and pops who are near them. And I think what happens for a lot of us, a lot of my clients are like me, ex-corporate. So we came out of corporate and we have a set of skills that didn't necessarily include figuring out how to run a specifically consulting business. And so when they come to me, I'm like, well, there's just some stuff to know. And it's this, this, and this. And so really quickly, we can turn their business around. So for example, one of my clients, she's a fashion consultant. She works with high fashion brands to help them do visual merchandising. And when she came to me, her business was doing really well. 
It was very much time-based. So hourly business and went from month to month with those clients. And she didn't necessarily, again, it's like smart people, but there's certain things that just don't occur to them. So she hadn't thought of like setting up contractual relationships with them where she works long-term and there's certain commitments from her side and from their side. And so we just put a lot more structure and formality around her business, improved her selling ability, other basic skills like that. She doesn't actually even need marketing. She has so many clients coming to her. But being able to enroll clients at higher value and for longer term, it just immediately took the bumps out of her business and evened out her revenues. And just yesterday, we were talking about it and the kind of relief that she's feeling, the ability to go away from the business and come back and just knowing that those revenues are stable, she finds she feels more passionate for her own work, excited about the business. And so that's been really gratifying to see that result. And it's not an unusual result. Like so often I'll be talking with a client who's been working with me for a while and they're just have a peace that you have when you have stable revenues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that making that transition from hourly to something other than hourly is a big stumbling block for lots of people. And I was having a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago where they were coming directly, they referred to me as a lawyer to help them protect their intellectual property but they were still billing hourly. And I'm like, well, first of all, everything was just kind of an extra set of hands. They're technology-based. And so they could program things, they can do implementation, they can do strategy. They did all the things for their clients, whatever the clients asked, we could do that. Like, And they were very proud of the fact that they could do whatever it is that you need to do. And I'm like, I don't think you're quite ready for me because you need to figure out a way to kind of put your stake in the ground about doing something in particular. What's the point of making you more efficient with intellectual property when you're billing by the hour? Mm-hmm. Like that just means yes. you're going to bill less. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so let's get you to a business coach first to get you like figuring out your business model. And then let's talk about how we make sure that we start building and say, right. But who taught business models when we all started, when you kind of put out your stake, you're like, usually, especially in professions that are traditionally built by the hour, like even the visual merchandising, most people, they think, well, how would you bill if it wasn't that way? So interestingly, I've worked with IT consultants who came to me with that situation and they were earning really well, but it was like, they would have like a $50,000 a month and then like a $20,000 a month. So there's just these peaks and valleys in their billing. But the problem was when they have team members who are billing by the hour, they couldn't allocate those team members properly because they didn't know the fluctuations, like how much are we going to build this month and how much are we going to build that month? And so what it required was saying to the client between all the partners and team members, we're working for you 40 hours this month and then 10 this month and then 30 and then 20. Like we can't schedule our people. We can't figure things out. So let's do this. We're going to chart out the work. We'll schedule the work and you'll know when we're going to be there and we'll know what we're going to be doing. And we're just going to be doing it with this kind of a schedule. So we give them like a project implementation plan of how we're going to work. And no matter how many hours that is, we'll levelize this building so that it's a flat, whatever the number is, for example, 40K each month. And that way you'll know how much it's going to be. You won't have lumpy expenses because even big companies don't want lumpy expenses. And then we'll have the predictability of where our people will be and when. And so when they did that, they just charted it out. We think the project's going to take us this long. It was 12 months. We were going to do this. Now you may see us more one month and less another month. It'll all come out in the wash. We're just going to deliver on these specific deliverables. And so we put that plan together. They went and sold it and it was immediately, that was a 40K a month 
So it's a $480,000 engagement that immediately after we set it up, like within a week, they had sold that one in. And then they did that with their subsequent clients. And the pushback is always, what if they're like, what if, how much is by the hour? And what I taught them to say was, that's not how we work. That's not how we work. We don't work by the hour. We don't sell anything by the hour. And that is not how we work. And if you can begin to transition your clients to where it's about outcomes and not about the hours, then they'll come to you when they'll need you. Yeah. And that brings us to becoming more effective and more efficient because then that, of course, increases your profitability. But just to back up to the example that I was just talking about, what he did is that he had subcontractors. So he would bring on, Mm -hmm. but he could never like obviously get any more profitable because he could just sell more hours. And then, okay, he was building the client X and then he was getting billed by his subcontractors Y. And then all he ever had was that differential. He could never get anywhere. It's like, I can't get anywhere. Well, <laughs> yeah, because your one business model is broken. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So let's yeah. get to becoming more efficient and effective with our delivery so that we can increase our profits. So you've already introduced the topic. And so, how do you help people get comfortable with that transition? Because that's a, you know, it's great to say we don't bill by the hour, but that's really scary when you are there with the client and feeling comfortable with, I can actually scope this out in a way that I know it's going to be profitable and that I'm not going to, because the clients are going to come in with changes and they're going to want this. And then suddenly it's like a totally, you know, so how do we get from there? There's a lot of client management in this. There's also the expertise of knowing, like, if we plan this out, we can tell how long it's going to take. So if you're new in your business and you don't know, then it might be better for you to do more hourly pricing or flexible or flat rate pricing. Whenever I've had a client who's done this and there's been like massive overruns, then they can go to their client and say, listen, we budgeted for this and we're having these massive overruns. I mean, just because we said it was going to be this, it doesn't mean, you know, we can allow for this kind of whatever to be out of control. So you can have, and I call those grown up conversations, like you can have a conversation with a client. I was about to say confrontational, but it doesn't have to feel confrontational, meaning you can just address the situation. But when you're mature enough in your work, and this is usually within the second or third year, you know, if I come in and I do this work, like my clients in this situation, we're going to have four team members on this. They're going to be giving it, it is time-based for them. They're going to each be giving it five hours or five days of their time. It's going to add up to this much. So they could mix and match that according to their expertise. From the client side though, it can seem like, well, the client isn't interested in this. They don't want to overpay per hour, but it's anytime we pay anything. I've estimated what the hours are and it doesn't really matter what the time is. What the client cares about are either deliverables or outcome or both. What they really want is like, just solve my problem. And especially if you're doing complicated digital transformation, which IT might do, or for a lot of my clients, a lot of my clients are leadership consultants or culture consultants, and they're going in and they're trying to make massive organizational change, transformational change. So figure out, What are the specific changes that we want to achieve? What's the goal of this initiative? And then how will we know what's been accomplished? So what kind of behaviors do we want to see? What kind of conditions in the work environment do we want to see? So you're teaching the client to measure according to that as opposed to the number of hours you put in. Now, one of the things that I think is important for consultants in general is to know what outcomes you can promise. So very often when we're doing hourly work, we're just saying, I'm just going to show up and forgive me, but like run my mouth, (laughs) you know, be in my genius, but you just show up and you like do your thing and then you get paid for that. 
And it's a very different level of responsibility, but also level of fulfillment when you can say, no, actually, let me take the lead in this. Instead of like, we're going to do 30 hours. And at the end of it, you'll have 30 hours of access to me. And I don't know what's going to happen with that, but probably we'll accomplish your goals. In this situation, you're saying over the course of a year or whatever time duration, we're going to make these transformations in your organization or in your business. And again, like to me, there's more responsibility with that, but I'm excited to do that. Most of my clients are like, they want that challenge. So it just changes the dialogue from showing up to not presence, but performance. Yeah. And I'm you know, not a business coach, but I try to pretend to be one every once in a while. Somebody asks me, I'll tell them what I think because I listen to people's podcasts like yours. When I was talking to this person about like how, like, I don't know how I can possibly flat fee something because I have no idea. And I'm like, it sounds like you don't really know your clients that well, Like you don't yeah. know who they are. You don't know what their problems are. You don't know how to, you're just kind of going in there and turning in hours because otherwise you would have a pretty good idea about what yeah. needs to be done in order to get the result that they want. And then you could put a price on that. So that maturity thing, you know, and having, doing some, figuring out either a niche type of client that you can help or mm-hmm. a specific problem that you solve so that you can kind of get yeah. really good at it and develop a program around that. And uh, that's where your signature system is also going to come in. Because in the first year, it's easy for me to say, and you know, and then go in there and do your process. But I do work with plenty of people who are like, oh, I don't know that I really have a process. And as you and I both will say, they do. They just, it might not be obvious to them yet. So what I usually say is spend a year or two in your work, see which things get repeated, see what kind of challenges you enjoy working on. And then you're going to develop solutions to that. And so year two or three is when, what I notice with my clients, they start to say, okay, I see what I'm doing. And then their signature system begins to emerge. And sometimes we'll help them with that. And sometimes that's the thing that they do on their own. Then that signature system's job is to get those outcomes. So efficiency in delivery comes when you're working according to that. It's not trial and error anymore. Also, I feel like Consultants feel like they can't promise outcomes because they're like, I don't know. I mean, it depends. Once you have a signature system, you can make bigger promises because you know that this is the way to get those results. Right. Yeah. And as consumers of services as well, like we want to know, okay, what am I going to get for this? Like, I don't want my website, which is frankly, has a ton of content on it just because I write all the time and but none of it is, there's no SEO, there's no tech, all this stuff that you're supposed to do. I don't have any of that stuff. And so I was talking to someone and he had a proposal for going through and categorizing and inventory and tagging. And I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to get from that? I'm like, well, I can't promise. I have a pretty long sales cycle, yeah. you know, between yeah. people coming and yeah. hanging out. It just feels like a deliverable to me and not like... Yeah. A solution. So yeah, as consumers, we want to know what we're paying for as well. So yeah. And in our work, I think SEO and PR are similar to what you're talking about in that they're like, I mean, we cannot guarantee results in this because like whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. I can't also cannot guarantee results to my clients because they have to take action and like there are joint accountabilities. So this to me is part of a mature working relationship is that I say, here's what I'm going to be responsible for. This is what you're going to be responsible for. And we both do our parts. The likeliest thing, like the biggest promise that I can make to you is you're probably going to experience results like my clients have. And somewhere along the way, if we're not trending towards that, one of us will know and Mm -hmm. will course correct. But you can make big promises in those situations. So what your SEO person can say is what we found is when we've done this for people's websites in the past, 
here's what usually happens. That's what I would look for as a kind of comforting thing. Because again, as a business owner, I know, I know who can promise me results and who can't promise me results. But in that situation, I think you still want to hear like, what's the closest thing? What's the biggest promise you can make to me in integrity? Mm -hmm. Right, right. I am still thinking about that one, but we'll see what happens with that. Mm -hmm. So you recently, well, I saw it on LinkedIn, but I think you did a podcast episode about it as well, about partnerships. And I've been talking a lot about collaboration. So very similar, obviously, from an intellectual property point of view and a legal point of view, I have my caution sign up when we're thinking about going into collaborations and partnerships. From a business perspective, what are you seeing as best practices, things to be worried about, and what's the best we can hope from our partnerships? Mm -hmm. Well, I took a super dim view in the first episode about them because nine times out of 10 in my personal experience with clients, and I've been in business for over 20 years, they almost always fail and fail extremely, like really badly. People in court, people trying to figure out how do we divide this business loan? that we took out together between ourselves individually. Someone, a partner decides to just stop working in the business, but still receive full salary because apparently that piece didn't get worked out. Women in just rev share partnerships will go into business with men and give away their power to them. And I say this because I'm an advocate for women. And so who I was really wanting to caution were women, because I think in a lot of cases, what I have noticed is I don't understand how these big, powerful, women get into working relationships with men and then become small in that situation. And again, have seen it. And so I'm very much cautioning everyone in general against any situation in which you feel like, well, I'm hoping that person will do sales. I'm hoping that person will do the parts of the business that I don't want to do. If you don't have that explicitly outlined, then you are in for a terrible surprise. They're going into committed relationships, working relationships before they've done dating, is what Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. So like, why don't we partner on a few short-term projects as revenue share partners before, why don't we collaborate before we form a legally binding agreement with one another? And then one of the things that I urge them to do is think about all the things you don't want to have a conversation about. So Aaron, what if I get sick of the whole thing and I decide to go to Mexico for two years? What will you do? What if you get sick of it and you decide what will I do? What if we do this and the business really fails and we only make $50,000 between us? Then what are we going to like say all of the things that you hope nobody says or asks or whatever? What if your cousin suddenly wants to get involved in the business and you decide that's a good idea? What if I don't want that? So how will we make decisions? How are we going to choose clients? How are we going to divide up expenses? And what if I want to pursue an angle in the business that you don't choose to? All of that, I think, doesn't get discussed enough before someone goes into business with another person. And so that's what I really cautioned against. This week, the episode's antidote came out where I interviewed a couple of partners who happen to be Martha's Vineyard-based business. They were also the first two partners that I reached out to. So I was looking around and I was like, well, gosh, there's got to be somebody who has a good partnership, not any of my clients. And so I saw them and I thought, oh, are they partners? And they were like, yes. And I thought, oh, well, this will be a great chance to kind of show like, oh, the good and the bad. And like with a real life example, they'll be really great. They don't have any negatives. They're like the happiest couple you've ever seen in your entire life in terms of a business partnership, which is great because guess what? 
healthy people make for happy partners. And you can hear the way they both have happy marriages. So what it says to me is, who are the healthiest people that you know that you work with? Like, you just don't get conflicts. They don't misunderstand you. They take responsibility, like self-responsible. You trust them implicitly. You can have any hard conversation about anything. It just shows you the extent to which having a healthy everything is going to make this financially based relationship work. Yeah, you know, it sounds like kind of the one plus one equals three kind of. Are you coming to it as a whole person? I guess kind of in a relationship way and not someone who wants someone to complete them. Like I have these deficiencies and I am coming to help you fill in my deficiencies versus I have this strength and you have this strength and together, boom, right? And so the same same applies there. I'm thinking about tech startups, if we want to, and the kind of the common understanding is that you kind of need like that finance guy and you the tech guy, right? And so they have these complementary skills. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. with an expertise-based business, what are the complementary skills? Is it another expert? Is it someone who's like the operations person versus the delivery? Like how do the best partnerships work in that space? Having, again, having seen so few of them that are working successfully, I have another example that I can draw on. And in that case, there were three partners and two of them were rainmakers and one of them wasn't. But the one that wasn't was such a deep expert in the work for more of an academic sense that she would do a lot of the IP creation content, things like that. That So she was really able to kind of like drill down into the meat of the work that they would give to clients. The other two also were very strong in that area, but she was significantly stronger. And then the two other partners were equally good at rainmaking, also had those big kind of client facing personalities. So one wanted to travel and present. This one didn't want to travel so much, but she was really great in client relationship management. So it's kind of the thing that you're saying, where it's a lot of whole partners, whole individuals, any single one of them could have had a business. Although I think the one who was the deep subject matter expert probably would have belonged more in academia than in private business. But because she had the other two out in front, it really worked out for her. So to me, the killer is when not everyone is rainmaking, because then there starts to be resentments about like, well, I brought in all this business and how are we dividing this up? The partners that I profile this week on the podcast They have a 50-50 partnership and they just don't even dig into things. They both are bringing in clients. They both are doing delivery and they're not kind of like nitpicking about the money, which I think is as long as you're paying close attention to the money, you don't have to nitpick. I just want there to be kind of like transparency and awareness of it. But in the case of those three partners, they felt good about the divisions of things. What's interesting is when I first went in and worked with them, they had an employee. There was only one actual, I mean, they may have all been employees, but there was a full-time employee on their team. One team member, full-time, always got paid. Guess who didn't always get paid? The partners, (laughs) right? This is why I'm like, gosh, you have to watch out for this stuff in terms of like, Women classically will want to make others whole before they make themselves whole. And here was a trio doing it, that kind of thing. So it won't be surprising to hear that I recommended and they did do, they did let him go because that just was not the right thing for them. In general, I think successful partnerships have trust. They have complementary skill sets that are, as you're saying, one plus one equals three, not three fourths, three fourths, three fourths. And everyone is dedicated to sales and marketing. And they enter a partnership agreement. <laughs> yes, you know, I'm not going to get it because I'm, I'm not a corporate structure person, but I will say just generally with a general partnership that each partner can bind the partnership unilaterally, unless you have something in writing to the contrary. Yes. 
So you want to make yes. sure that uh, you have all that stuff figured out and done. Absolutely. You want to have a key person insurance <laughs> mm -hmm. in case something happens to your partner. You want to have a buy-sell agreement so that if something happens to them, you're not in. One of the things I mentioned is you don't want to be in. Find out that you're suddenly your business partner is your dead partner's son. That is exactly right. <laughs> which can happen if you don't have these things spelled out. Exactly. All of the stuff that you don't, people don't think about until it happens. And then you're like, rut row. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have a law school friend who like her literally her entire practice was breaking up partnerships that went sideways. Like it's, <laughs> like know, she's a divorce lawyer for business. <laughs> it is a cottage industry, like trying to unravel <laughs> partnerships that go sideways. It really is, can be quite a mess. It really can. All right. So, well, that yeah. brings us to, you mentioned having one partner who digs into the IP more and someone else who does other things. So talking about intellectual property, I've been currently starting to track ways that business coaches talk about intellectual property without saying intellectual property. <laughs> and so like how <laughs> they use, you know, kind of scaling and a scalable offer. They have different ways that they talk about. I should have my list here. And so I'm going to, at some point, I'm going to write about that. But at the end of the day, if we are going to decouple our income from our time, we have to be selling something other than our time, which has to be an asset of yeah. some course, of course. And when we're experts, that asset is intellectual property. So when you are working with your clients, like how are you talking to them about intellectual property? What kind of questions are they asking you about? I will usually talk about having a signature system or a proprietary approach to the work mm -hmm. that they do. And I'm doing that less from the point of view that you are, although it is important to me that they have IP and that they have something that is an asset that is separate from themselves and can do some of the work for them. I will use it in terms of standardizing their work so that they get consistent results. That's part one. The second thing that I want is for them to bring in subcontractors so that they don't have to work as hard because the subcontractor doesn't need to bring their own ideas and IP. They can merely follow the IP that my clients have I can teach you to do it the Acme Inc. way or the Jane Smith Consulting way. That is our proprietary approach to working with the clients. So my subcontractors can come in and do that. And then I think a really good thing here too is that you can give this to the client and they then can also implement according to your IP. You can turn that into e-learning or e-courses or whatever, which means that your work is accessible by clients who might not otherwise be able to afford you. It can scale where you cannot. So there's, I'm sure I'm just repeating the things that you're saying all the time, but those are the things that I'm teaching my clients to do with IP. And specifically, they're very often with me at the stage where they have to kind of like extract. I always do this motion as if they're like pulling the skeleton out <laughs> of the body. Here's the structure, which I feel like I intuitively show up and do, but then I realized in a little while, oh, hang on, I do have like a seven-step system or my five-part whatever. Right. That piece is critical to them experiencing leverage in their business. So signature systems are under, in my world, that's under the heading of leverage, like ways that we make more of our time and pulling that IP out and working with it independently is one of them. Now, my favorite example of clients who did this were these consultants who just believed so strongly that their clients wanted to co-create, they co-created the workshops or the, if they were going to come in and work with a client for six months on something, they would co-create that approach of what they were going to do. And at one point I said to them, why are you co-creating this with the clients? Like, they don't know anything about how to achieve, let's say it was culture. They don't know anything about how to achieve culture change. Like, why are you co-creating this with them? No, they really like to do it. I was like, do they really? And they were like, yeah, we feel like, oh, well, maybe not. And do you believe that there's like a right way to do this? And they said, oh, yes, definitely. I was like, well, then why do you let the clients get in here and muddy that up? It turned out it was because 
they were billing by the hour and they wanted to pack in the hours that they worked on the IP because if they didn't have all of that time that they spent co-creating their approach, then they weren't charging enough. And I said, here's the deal is if you're charging $138,000 for this, that's what it's worth. The client doesn't want to do all that nonsense and you don't want to recreate your thing. Just charge $138,000 for the engagement. And they were like, I'm mind blown. <laughs> and it's just not obvious to people that like, they're saying it's this valuable. So that is, I think, the way that you can get to IP that is separate from your own value. And one of the first things that I'll do with my clients to help them double their revenues is to say, if you come in and you're like, well, it's a whatever long engagement and it's usually $50,000, charge separately for the IP. And my signature program, the Jane Smith approach to getting whatever benefit, is 25,000. And so that's $75,000 engagement so that we as consultants learn to charge for the IP and clients learn to go like, oh, the system itself has inherent value. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'll say the last time I billed hourly, I wish I could say this was, I'm just going to say that it was because there was another time. But (laughs) the time I said, (laughs) this is it. It was when someone came to me and it was, you know, I have done a lot of work in market research. And so they'd been using other lawyers and they always had to explain everything, blah, blah, blah. And they come to me and I like just knew the answer, just Mm -hmm. did it, done. (laughs) Took me a couple hours. I'm like, oh, that's great. And I was really, I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) I just solved their entire problem Uh for two hours worth of billables because I knew the answer already. I'm like, okay. I know. (laughs) Did that make you so cranky? You were penalized for efficiency and expertise. Yes. Yes. That was the tax on being brilliant (laughs) and fast. It was. There's so many times. So, well, thank you for sharing that. So as you know, this is a very meta broad podcast. I'm a female founder of an expertise-based business that I am hoping to have some saleable assets at the end of it. How about you? You're a female founder of an expertise-based business. What is the plan for your business? So like an exit strategy and creating assets. I mean, I love the idea of creating assets in my business. I do have, I'm a teacher by personality and archetype. And so I just create numerous programs. I have a year-long program about how to do things, one of which is a signature system. So I do have a signature system about how to create signature systems. Like that's speaking of meta. So I just think in those terms and any of those could easily stand alone as a program. And it's possible that in someday in the near future, They will, and I'll either market or sell those individually. And right now I haven't done that yet. So I don't know if those want to be books or what those want to be, or if the whole business wants to be sold, but I feel like I'm such in a place of enjoying where I am in the business and that I love it. I really like a high intimacy business. So I have private clients and then I have group coaching clients and it's just really so fulfilling that it's not that I don't think about that kind of time horizon and sometime in the future, but It's not an urgent thing for me yet. Well, the good news is that when we are doing things that create a scalable business, we're also doing those things that create a saleable business because that is creating that independence from the owner and not relying on time. So that's fantastic. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as we wrap up, as you know, I believe that wealth in the hands of women can change the world and working on creating a more equitable economy. So I'd love to share with the audience organizations that are doing great work in that space. And is there someone that you'd like to share? My go-to on this is Kiva. I remember the first time I heard about microloans and I just thought it was the best idea because I think when we're doing all these massive country loans to somewhere, 
And I was like, well, who's doing something like right here? And so I have supported Kiva for, I mean, probably as long as they've been around, as long as I've heard of them. And I'm always choosing a woman-owned business who's, I usually have like an equal amount of ones that are like North America based and then ones that are in exotic countries doing things because I so completely agree with you. And what I can tell you is in my international travels and having lived overseas that when women are thriving, everybody's thriving. And it's very often the women who are the backbone of the economy. And when I've lived in places where, oh my gosh, it didn't seem like this country had its act together. There were women who were like, getting up, making things happen before everybody got up and after everybody went to bed. And if she just had a little bit of money to invest, then she could make wonderful things happen. And for other users of Kiva, you know that occasionally someone will default on a loan, but it's like so almost never that I feel like their stats are really incredible. And it's just a great investment to me. I think people underestimate the power of even small loans, small investments. It's not, it doesn't have to be a million bucks and it can go very far. I mean, I'm just thinking about closer to home. This is not a Kiva type of thing, but when uh, I think there was a city, was it Houston maybe that was giving a thousand dollars a month to people yep. and the big difference that it made in their lives. Just it's, you know, that's UBI. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's universal basic income. And yeah. they're doing experiments all over the world with universal <laughs> basic income. And I am a, personally just a huge proponent of it because as you're hearing, like, I think the problem that we feel like is the first barrier to it is, well, nobody's giving me and nobody gave me. And I feel like, okay, but we're trying to do better now. The other argument that we hear is like, well, they'll probably just spend it on. And I'm like, what? They're spending it on their bills. And when we look at what people actually spend it on, it's just like I was saying about the default rate. The people who abuse that program are almost none ever, even though we might imagine that they would. And it just funny things happen. Like suddenly all of the basic living conditions and quality of life increase. And it's for such small amounts of money. So the experiments I've seen have been like 500 a month or up to $2,000 a month. And it's like, you can lift people out of poverty for such a small amount of money. And I feel like if we can, why not? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And we will put the link to Kiva in the show notes. And so while we wrap up, I know you have a fantastic offer. Can you tell us about it? I have a document I put together. It's called the Definitive Guide to Winning Six-Figure Clients. And I put it together because a lot of people are like, what? Six figures? That's crazy. I want to, I mean, I'm only doing a few hundred six-figure business in my business. How could I have that in a single client? And I'm like, I have a lot of clients who have six-figure clients. So this is basically a case study of some of my individual clients. So you see a lot of different kinds of businesses where they're doing it. And then it's actually just a how-to step-by-step guide of how to make these transformational offers that are based on having a specific outcome, charging a specific amount of money for that. And so that you, as the individual consultant, you have money coming in on the books for months in advance, as far as you can see into the future. That sounds fantastic. Oh, and you can get it at, yes. yeah, you can get it at sixfigureclients.com. So it's six, the numeral sixfigureclients.com. Fantastic. And then where can they find you generally? You find me at samanthahartley.com. And I'm Samantha Hartley on most of the socials. Fantastic. LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Your Facebook person too? What are you doing on Facebook? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so legacy on Facebook. You know, I wouldn't be on Facebook if I wasn't for work. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. It has been fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you, Erin. I have learned so much from you over the last several months. So it's been great knowing you and I love being able to be here with you and your listeners. 
Awesome. Thank you. This week's episode of the Hourly to Exit podcast is sponsored by the NDA Navigator. Non-disclosure agreements, also known as NDAs, are the bedrock of protecting your ideas and your business's confidential information. Of course, I recommend that you have a lawyer review any agreement before you sign it. However, facing a constant stream of NDAs can be overwhelming especially when time and budget constraints prevent you from seeking full legal review. That's where the NDA Navigator comes in. Designed specifically for entrepreneurs, consultants, and business owners with corporate clients, the NDA Navigator is your guide to understanding, negotiating, and implementing NDAs. Empower yourself with legal insights and practical tools when you don't have the time or funds for a full legal review. Get 20% off by using the coupon code H2E at protectyourexpertise.com. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Hourly to Exit podcast. Don't forget to check out the show notes for the resources and organizations mentioned during the episode. If you find the podcast to be valuable, please subscribe so you get notified of new episodes every week. And I would be so grateful for a rating and review and it helps get the word out. See you next week.